Hey everybody, this is Ray Patelsch, and this is episode 60 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest, that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope everyone's doing all right out there this week. Happy New Year. Sorry we went a couple of weeks without an episode. The uh, holiday madness kind of took in, and then last week when I sat down to, to edit, there was kind of a, an important event going on and it's going to be a, another uh, moment for the history books and I just really couldn't bring myself to editing an episode. I did put a call out on social media apologizing for that but for my listeners who don't follow me on social media I do apologize for not having an episode last week but uh, sometimes you, you just have to pay attention to what's going on in the world and, and unfortunately this was one of those cases but we're back Happy New Year. Happy 2021. I'm really excited about the slate of movies that I have recorded. I'm really excited about the slate of movies that I have yet to record, uh, but lined up to talk about. So we're going to have a good year. Um, hopefully this year we will be able to get back into the movie theaters, uh, but we're not going to put the cart before the horse as you will. We're just going to uh, take it one week at a time as we do. One of the things that has really kind of struck me almost as, as ironic uh, with all the COVID lockdown and, and, and quarantining and sheltering in place or whatever title you wish to, to refer to it by is that somehow I've ended up being a little more social than I was when I could go out in the world. And, and part of that is I've started playing Dungeons and Dragons again. Um, I am an old school gamer. I've got my first Dungeons and Dragons set when I was 11. Um, and I have played role-playing games uh, all through high school and then on and off since then with long periods, unfortunately of off and being able to enjoy other people playing on the internet for the longest time was kind of my Dungeons and Dragons experience. And I'm, I'm really glad to have found uh, a couple of groups now, one that I'm running and one that I'm playing in um, and, and some great friends that I'm making through that. Some, some of which are older friends that, that um, have gotten me back into it. But uh it's still nice to listen to other people play, especially when they can be really entertaining. Uh, and one of those that I enjoy listening to is the Lucky Die podcast. Uh, I've had two of their members on the podcast before, and and this makes the hat trick. This makes number three. Um, this one is Ethor. I'm probably butchering the name as best as I am trying it. Um, and you've actually heard part of his story before if you listened way back when we covered Beauty and the Beast. Um, our guest that week, Hem, talked about how she left England for love and moved to Iceland. Well, this is uh, the other half of that couple. And he picked a phenomenal movie that I was so happy to get a chance to revisit and talk about. And that is 2007's Stardust, which I really think is an underappreciated classic. Um, to me, it, it is almost the perfect have not seen this type movie, because if you have seen it, most likely you love this movie. And if you haven't seen it, then you are really missing out. We end up having a great conversation about it, and it was, it was fantastic. Again, this is the third member of that podcast crew that I've had on the show, and and every one of them has been wonderful. And with my decision to let repeat you know guests come back on, uh, I, I'm really hoping to have many more wonderful conversations with them in the future. So let's get to it. No die rolls here. We're just going to head straight into 2007's Stardust. I gathered as soon as I got the form from you that you had to be part of the same group of, of friends who have uh, uh, each been on the show now. So I have two questions. Uh, yep. One, 
are you the guy that she left London to go to Iceland for? And two, uh, how many more of you are there? <laughs> Uh, the answer to your first question is yes. Uh, I tricked this poor, poor girl to come from Brighton uh, all the way to Iceland. And <laughs> now we live on a little island uh, to the south of Iceland, which is an even smaller island, uh, population 3,500-ish right now. And it's beautiful, it's calm, it's serene, it's small, it's simple. The problems with small towns, of course, comes up. Everybody knows everybody, but... Not a big deal. And the answer to your other question is, there are two of us left as far as I know. It's Arch and Neil that have not come to your show yet, but uh, Casey and V have both come on. Fantastic. I'm I'm having... I, I love the fact that each of you have connected me individually, and it's just been this delight. Like, when I, when I get the form filled out, I'm like... I mean, first of all, Casey didn't tell me until we were recording, so I had no idea that she was associated with you guys. But when I got yours, it was like, this has to be... I mean, I think you put your podcast in the form, too, so that helped. But it was like, awesome, there's a third one! <laughs> v uh, said she had a blast. I think you recorded like an hour before they recorded... We recorded an actual episode of TLT. So V basically just came hot off recording with you into a game with us and just started singing your praises. Just really <laughs> wanted to join. I had a blast chatting with her. I mean, and and, and I mean, I've had a blast uh, with Casey, and I, I anticipate this one being fun too, especially because you've picked a a really fun movie. I, thank you. Yes, thank you. Oh, <laughs> it's good to hear. Before we get to the movie, and I can't remember if I talked about it with him. What is the film going experience like in Iceland? Like, what is? Uh, and and I know it, it's very similar in a lot of ways, but I know different cultures, different uh, countries have differences too. So what what is it? like is it expensive is it cheap is it something that happens frequently or infrequently what's what's just gen in general what's it like well um it's very similar to what the what i imagine the american experience is it is too expensive to, to be something you do every weekend uh, but it is uh, inexpensive enough that you can absolutely allow yourself to do it if you don't buy yourself uh sodas at the fountain at the at the convenience I don't know what to call it. <laughs> Confectionary no, stand. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, no, it's um, it is not very expensive, and we follow the exact same uh, or very similar like movie theater rules as Americans. It's no phones allowed, uh, no talking during the movie. Uh, there's li little to no hoot hooting or hollering during the movies here. It's very calm usually, except of course comedy movies, and yeah, like I I'd say like we very much copied the American experience. Gotcha. Uh, we're just a little bit differently cultured, I guess. So it's like once you sit down in the theater, that might be a little bit different. But as far as I know, it's not. Gotcha. So with the, the coronavirus kind of impacting oh, yeah. theaters in particular, what's the last film you saw in theaters? Oh, uh, I kind of stopped going to the theaters uh, a long time ago. <laughs> so I think the last movie I went to might either have been a re-showing of uh, Evil Dead 2. Oh, awesome. Or... <laughs> no, wait. No, me and V went to a theater in, in Brighton. We went to see the second Zombieland movie. That's the oh. last movie. Yeah, that was okay. just a random, like, we had nothing to do one night. We both got bored, so we just went on a walk, and there was a theater, and it was showing Zombieland 2. And we just kind of wandered in, bought ourselves a ticket. Fantastic. That's yeah. that's. I still have not seen that one. I love the original Zombieland, but for some reason, I just never 
got around to seeing Zombieland 2. And I, I think my girlfriend and I just talked last weekend about how we need to fix that. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely worth watching, but it's like, it's no Zombieland 1. Zombieland 1 just came at the right time, just at the start of the zombie craze experience. And it was meta enough to be really, really enjoyable. And this movie's just more of the same, but it's just so late in the game that it just doesn't deliver the same experience. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so what kind of movies do you like? What kind of a movie person are you? I mean, you've mentioned a horror movie. You've picked a fantasy slash romance movie. Uh, <laughs> Zombieland is a, another horror movie. What, what's, what's your jam as far as films go? I am a, like a weird uh, omnivore when it comes to movies. I don't have a scene that I enjoy. But, oh, okay. Uh, like, like I'm not, I'm not gonna say that I enjoy everything. Uh, contemptu- com- uh, movies that are based in certain time periods, I loathe. I cannot watch those movies. I don't know why. I just cannot get into them. So, is it a particular time period, or is it just period movies as a whole? Period movies as a whole. I feel like everybody's talking funny. I can't understand it, and they're trying to relate an experience from not only not my culture, but also from a time that is like. Like, we're talking about that my grandparents, no, my great-grandfather considered buying a house that had mud floors. That's how short ago, like, Iceland caught up with the rest of the world. So, like, (laughs) watching movies that are like, oh, this is in the 1600s, and it looks like it happened maybe 50, 60 years ago in Iceland. It just always just doesn't jive with me. I just don't enjoy it. Gotcha. Uh, And that that brings up an interesting question I didn't think of. Are are films shown there, are they uh, subtitled or dubbed or are they just shown and everybody's expected to to know English? (laughs) They're all subtitled by law. Uh, They're not allowed to show a movie in theaters without it being subtitled. There are some very strange exceptions to that. For instance, when I saw Evil Dead 2. Uh, But it usually is some kind of a like, if this is a film festival and not a... uh, a business adventure, then you're allowed to uh, let like not have subtitles. But if it is part of like a movie-going business, it has to have Icelandic subtitles. It's one of the reasons why Netflix had such a hard time coming to Iceland. Ah, okay. See, that's an interesting difference. That's what I was talking about as far as like what what's the experience there. That's fascinating. They by law have to be subtitled. Yeah. Huh. Now you you speak pretty fluent English, I think before we started recording, you said like 30 years experience or so. So do you pay any attention to the subtitles? I mean, do you ever get any kicks off of things being weirdly translated or do you just go in and enjoy the film? Uh, it's a very like, um, it's like it's very, it very much depends on the movie and the editing of the movie. Uh, some movies have very loud soundtracks and I have like, I don't think I have bad hearing, but I think I have some kind of a, like a, I have a bad, hard time differentiate. Uh, like breaking apart different sounds so if there's loud noises and talking going at the same time i have a very hard time like breaking it apart uh which makes it very weird that i'm in audio dramas and stuff like that where that is a very (laughs) common problem uh but uh like i i keep uh i always keep subtitles on and i've been reading subtitles so long i don't even notice so i just zone out if the movie has good enough sound editing i don't see the subtitles if the sound editing is bad i read the subtitles without realizing it that's see, that's fantastic. I mean, I know last year when Parasite won the Oscar, that was the oh. comment that was being made was, um, you know, so many more films would be open to audiences if people could just get past that two inch line at the bottom. You know, mm-hmm. that's kind of and, and like I loved Parasite once I finally watched Great. it and I, I don't have any aversion to watching foreign films and, and having subtitles. But I mm-hmm. do know people who are like, I want to watch a movie, not just not read it, you know, yeah, and yeah. I, I don't understand that mindset. 
but it's great that you just kind of you you've gotten so adept at it that it's not an issue at all I don't even know the subtitles anymore. And yes, Parasite was an amazing goddamn movie. Uh, <laughs> absolutely just blew my mind. Uh, me and V, we had like a little bit of a, like a foreign film marathon. We watched the, a couple of foreign men, m- movies on Netflix and some movies not on Netflix. So, uh, and yeah, uh, the Parasite was just like leagues above all the other movies we watched. Yeah. Yeah, and I, not not to influence any audience members, but that even though that's just a last year movie, uh, that would be a perfect one to come on the show and talk about because there are many people who have not seen that film, and damn, mm-hmm. it is brilliant. <laughs> it is really, really good. All right, uh, well, before we get into Stardust, um, the show is called Have Not Seen This. We talk about movies we're surprised people have not seen. Uh, mm-hmm. What are your have not seen this movies? What are movies that your friends give you a hard time about not having seen yet? Uh, well, until um, like last year, I hadn't seen Princess Bride, and uh, oh my god, <laughs> my friends gave me constant guff about that. Except that one friend who also hadn't seen it, and he also thought it was like the same as I thought it was—just a romantic comedy that I wasn't particularly interested in. It's so much more, of course. Yes. Uh, um, the new Joker movie. Uh, one of my friends just swears that it is like it is so good. It has nothing to do with comics. It has nothing to do with Batman. It's just a really really good movie um that one comes up a lot too that's interesting okay and um see v has basically been going through my v sorry uh hem has been going through my haven't seen these movies and just been squashing them i watched (laughs) the entire big lebowski uh earlier this year oh that's another Uh, great one I'd never watched it all the way through because as a kid, I'd caught the first 30 minutes, kid, uh, when I was younger, I had caught the first 30 minutes of that movie five times in one month and then was like dragged away and couldn't watch the rest of it. So as a grown up, I just was like, this movie makes no sense. I don't get it. And of course, like as a kid, I also couldn't understand English. I couldn't get the nuances and all the jokes that were going on. So I just had, I'd like pushed it away like i was never gonna watch that movie but uh it turns out it's really good yeah yeah well it's nice to have someone who helps you quash those uh have not seen that like you know i have not seen those movies it's uh <laughs> you know that, that that's always fun to have someone who's willing to to sit through stuff that they enjoy specifically to introduce you to it uh, yeah, i love yeah. it when that happens all right well let's get to th- this week's movie uh which you have picked 2007's stardust Uh, Written by Jane Goldman and Matthew Vaughn, directed by Matthew Vaughn, starring Charlie Cox, Claire Danes, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Mark Strong. I have a surprise for you. Victoria, for your hand in marriage, I'd cross oceans. You're funny, Tristan. Oh, Tristan, a shooting star! I'd cross the wall and I'd bring you back that fallen star. You can't cross the wall. Nobody crosses the wall. Have you seen a fallen star anywhere? We're in a crater. This must be where it fell. Yeah, this is where I fell. You're the star. You're the star? Really? (laughs) You've seen stories of magical worlds. (laughs) Wicked witches. Flying pirates. And dashing princes. But never has there been an adventure quite like this. Everyone's talking about a fallen star. When I find 
Hap, the glory of our youth shall be restored. This is the part where you tell me who you are and why you're up here. We're just trying to make our way home. Touche. You better be telling the truth, you two-faced dog. I can get you one of them, actually. Very good guard dogs. They can watch the back and the front door at the same time. Enough. Where's the girl? You have seconds to live. Now we shall begin. And before we get into the, the deep discussion, you know, that's all the cast members I listed as far as starring, because those are like the big names. But when I sat down to watch this, I was astonished at the people who basically were nobodies when this movie was made and have really blown up. I mean, Charlie Cox is, you know, Daredevil in Netflix's Daredevil series. And his father in this movie, the young version of him, is played by Ben Barnes, who's one of the antagonists in the Punisher series. And you have Henry Cavill show up. Uh, I mean, it's, it's you know, and, and Mark Strong was not that well-developed an actor at this point, but obviously Matthew Vaughn liked working with him because he goes on to put him in both of the Kingsman movies he made. And I just, <laughs> it is a fun movie just for watching and catching uh, actors that you, if you had seen this in 2007 wouldn't have stood out to you, but will now. Yeah, you're, you're hitting on probably my biggest like uh, weak spot, which is star recognition. Oh, gotcha. I could I could not have named a single actor in this movie, um, <laughs> but by name, like I could have gone like, oh yeah, that guy's in Punisher, but I don't know his name. Uh, right. So like I like star names are really really a blind spot for me. So I'm sorry, I will be very boring in this part of the conversation. <laughs> oh no no no! I just and and it, for me it was more of that same thing. Like for me, sometimes it's I recognize them from something else, but I don't know what the something else is. Like that was Charlie yeah. Cox to me because he's so young here and in daredevil he's he's older obviously and he you know short hair and speaking in an american accent so i didn't rec like i was like i know i know him from other stuff and i looked him up and was like oh that's charlie cox like i didn't have a name i just knew i knew him from something i never in a million years would have picked out henry cavill like I, that i just happened to i always I, it's my girlfriend actually makes fun of me i watch a movie and then like the first thing that happens sometimes when the end credits are rolling is i go on imdb and I look at cast and I look at trivia and that kind of stuff because I want to know more about the movie. It's so fun. And I, I know when I saw this in theaters in 2007, I knew who Michelle Pfeiffer was, obviously. I knew who Robert <laughs> De Niro was. You know, the, the, the big Peter O'Toole puts in a, a very short appearance in this and I knew who he was. And those were the names that they were selling the movie on. But to me, it was just interesting, the younger cast members who weren't really big names at the time and who they are now. Yeah. All right. So what is uh, so how do you describe this movie? This is always my opening question. How do you describe this movie to someone who has not seen it? How do you sell them on wanting to see the movie? I genuinely don't. This is my guilty pleasure. This is that weird movie that I watch maybe once a year and I don't try to get anybody in on it. It is my guilty pleasure. Uh, <laughs> it was basically just like I heard the kind of concept of your podcast and uh, or, or your show and I had to think deep and hard like what movie can I suggest that I would assume is interesting to talk about but hasn't been talked about. Uh, so I chose Stardust, my guilty pleasure. If I were to try to sell it to somebody, it is a strange kind of magical fan a fiction romp with a hint of romance, uh, British humor, and beautiful, beautiful music and cinematography. And just watch it. And if it's awful, then I'm sorry. 
<laughs> see that and the fact that you listed princess bride as a movie you hadn't seen until more recently was part of why i was interested in that question because when i saw it my first selling point was it's a new generation's version of the princess bride it has a lot of that same magic and wonder and romance in it yeah. that the princess bride has and and so we with you not having that as a point of reference i was very curious as to how you sell it. i love the fact that you don't that you just this is just your movie and <laughs> if other people have seen it great but you're not going to try and convince anybody no absolutely not it's a weird movie from 2007 it has some very rough edges around it it's not for everybody it's it's my weird little rom-com movie that I apparently watch. I, by the way, had completely forgotten it was a rom-com until I had to watch it again with a critical eye. It's just like, oh, right, this is a rom-com. I completely forgot about that. There's like a love triangle thing going on. Right, right. Yeah, there were so many aspects of this movie I had forgotten about since the last time I watched it. So what is your history with this movie? Like, what, you, you say you watch it every year. When did you first find it? Well, I saw it in the theater. I genuinely, uh, I think I went there with two of my buddies. And one of them I've kind of lost contact with now. But another one is just like a long-term buddy. And we went to see it. We watched the entire movie. And we all just kind of enjoyed it. We were all just like, that was a fun romp through like a fun, weird, magical world. About... A year or two later, I go on a Neil Gaiman kick of reading his mm. books, and I learned that Stardust is actually based on a book by Neil Gaiman. And I read the book, and then I watch the movie again. And then uh, watching the movie has kind of become a tradition, while reading the book, not so much. Uh, reading is hard. <laughs> <laughs> I know there are significant differences between the, the movie yeah. and book. The book started as a graphic novel series and yeah. then was adapted into a standard novel format and then was adapted into this film. Um, and I know Neil Gaiman has gone on record as saying he sees them as being the the same story in different universes, that it's kind of like the, the DC equivalent of Earth 2, that... Yeah you know, that the, the book is one version of the story and the movie is another, and he likes both of them. How do you feel about the book versus the movie? Well, uh, it, I have this theory that it's always whatever you saw first is the thing you like the most. Uh, mm -hmm. And it is the case in this. Uh, this I have many, many pit, pet peeves with the movie, but I like the movie more than the book, obviously. Uh, <laughs> I think the movie just does, like... It does that just kind of fantasy romp, just the perfect, just, it, it never stops. It, it's always going, there's always more magic, there's more adventure, and then there's like a very soft romance chapter, and then there's more magic and more adventure, and it's just wonderful. I love it. So this is the second time you've mentioned, you know, pet peeves or issues or rough around the edges. So what are some of your issues with the movie? Well, my biggest issue is the ending, so I don't want to go straight there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, one of my pet peeves is the uh, quality of the CG and the quality of my DVD copy. Uh, I don't know if my... So, okay, I'm going to admit something right now. I have a DVD copy. I don't have a DVD player, so I had to torrent the movie to watch it again just for the <laughs> review. I recently moved and the DVD player went in the trash. And my current computer doesn't have a CD drive. So, But in my memory, I remember this being also a pet peeve of mine with the movie I had, the DVD. It wasn't DVD quality. It was slightly below. You can see the kind of film grain and the roughness. 
And then on top of that, there is some very dodgy CG in this movie. Most notably in the intro, rest of the movie mostly kind of gets away with and kind of blends it with the cinematography. But there are definitely points where my brain just goes like, oh, oh, come come on. Just cut that scene. Just cut that scene, please. This is awful. The fucking elephants in the first scene, it just kills me. It kills me, the fucking elephants, every time. See, that's really interesting to me because I didn't really... Uh, have any CG moments that stood out to me as particularly bad uh, when I was re-watching this. And I, I also have it on DVD, but it's also on Netflix, so rather than dig out my DVD copy, I, I watched it there. Ah, oh, shit, it was on Netflix? Oh, well, that it's on American amazing. Netflix. It's on American oh, Netflix, right, let's say yeah, that. Right, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I didn't see any CG that particularly stood out to me to make me go, well, this is bad. I do think... Uh, the the transformation sequence when Michelle Pfeiffer's witch becomes young, I remember really being awed by that in 2007. And last night when I rewatched this, I was like, eh, that's not so great as I remember it being. <laughs> no, uh, like the CG isn't like really bad. It's just that I know that most of the movie was shot on sets with minimal green screen and backgrounds. Mm-hmm. For instance, the entire witch's house is a set. The entire uh, sky boat is a set. Like I-, I know these all were like sets that they created for the movie. So when they have like a little bit of dodgy CG in like here and there, just you have to cut corner corner somewhere. It always just like it sticks in my eye. It sticks in my eye. It's, I don't know why. And I'm, I'm not from the, like, uh, from the Star Wars generation where there was literally no green screens or anything like that. And all the CG was, like, $5 billion just to get, like, a minute of something. Uh, right. So, like, I'm not from the generation that, like, wants everything pure, but there's something about it that just bothers me. I, I don't gotcha. know. I don't know. Well, that makes sense. I mean, especially because so much of the film is done practically. And I, personally, I think that's some of its charm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm such a big fan of effects achieved practically that you know and i do think it's noticeable on screen although i was just reading uh, an interview with a director who was talking about it doesn't matter if it's cg or practically practical as long as the end effect is appealing to the audience you know that 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 it doesn't you can mess up a practical effect you can mess up a cg effect what matters is the end result not the process to get there of course of course and i think the end goal sometimes wasn't great in Stardust, but uh, clearly I think I may have just been in a uh, critical mood when I was watching it earlier. Uh, (laughs) Gotcha. Well, talking about critical view, let's take a look at what the critics said about this. It sits at 76 at Rotten Tomatoes with an 86% audience score. So the audience likes it more than the critics. It sits at 66% on Metacritic, so more recent reviews have been a little less kind. I always pull in a positive and a negative review. Uh, just possibly ideas for us to bounce off of, or just an idea of how the critics responded to it. The negative review comes from Roger Ebert. I always try to use Ebert, and this time he's the (laughs) negative review. Uh, He says, a fantasy, even a comic fantasy, needs above all to be lean and uncluttered. Only reality is untidy. The classic fantasy structure involves the hero, the quest, the prize, and what stands in the way. It is not a good sign that almost the most entertaining element of Stardust is Captain Shakespeare appearing from the skies in his dirigible pirate ship. Shakespeare, played by Robert De Niro as a transvestite swashbuckler, swishbuckler, is wonderful, but he should be forced to wear a badge saying, Hi, I'm the deus ex machina. The positive review comes from Anne Kelly with BBC. And she says, massively pretty to look at, Stardust bursts with 
original novel author Gaiman's trademark invention. Every shot glitters with detail. Every character hints at volumes of tales about them that could be told, and quite possibly are, at least in Gaiman's head. In places, this riot of originality almost cramps the story. The many dazzling distractions the film offers sometimes get in the way of the pace. Still, it's rare to have the opportunity to complain about too much invention. So any thoughts on either of those? Well, I have thoughts of both of those. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> well, uh, to Ebert, uh, like, it's a very throwaway line that he calls it a Deus Ex Machina. It's a, like, my brain just kind of goes like, there are like 10 of those in this movie. What, <laughs> what like, are, why are you picking that one? Or is it just to make a fun, like, writing column? Maybe, maybe. Like, whatever there. Uh, I think that's he's valid. absolutely that's, right. That's absolutely yeah. valid. <laughs> I think he's absolutely right about uh, Robert Nero absolutely stealing the show there. Uh, just happens sometimes. Sometimes a side character is the best scene. Um, but both of them kind of mentioned the clutter, and I think this is exactly the reason why this is a uh, uh, what's a, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I used the phrasing earlier. It's my guilty pleasure. Guilty pleasure. Okay. The world feels like it's much bigger than what we see, and that's like the highest praise I can give any movie. And this is what like always like grabs me and sucks me into movies. I love it when a movie tells me like, oh yeah, this is the kingdom of in this case Stormhold, and you can right. see there's more behind it. There's more like there's not just the kingdom of Stormhold. There are other kingdoms out there, but they never mention them. Right. And like I I love that kind of stuff. I I love it that we see a witch uh, that sells uh, glass flowers that have different charms, and we just get to learn about one of them. There's clearly a cabal of witches in this world. We never hear anything more than a throwaway line by Ditchwater Sally. Like nothing ever mentions the witches more than that. And I love that. I love that shit. I love it when a movie gives the audience the confidence that they can understand that there is more to this movie than just literally what you're seeing right now. It's yeah. genuinely one of the reasons why I absolutely loved the new Mad Max movie. Uh, there are so many throwaway lines that give you so much context clues about the extended, the, the extended world, the half life of the uh, war boys and shit like that. Like it all caught in my brain. And I absolutely loved that movie. Back on the movie we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think, uh, I, like, I think their problem is my my honey. Like I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, and I I agree with you. That's one of the things about this film that I absolutely love is the world building that goes on and the fact that everything is not explicitly spelled out for the audience. It's there for you to discover. If you miss it on the first watch and you catch it on a subsequent watch, then great. If you never catch it, it's still there. Uh, and it doesn't detract from your appreciation of the story as a whole. Like, as you mentioned, you know, we learned about the one charm and it makes you go back to that scene at the beginning where he's looking at the different flowers to buy. And she says, you know, oh, don't buy that one. You want this one. And it makes you wonder, well, what did that one do? Like, there's mm-hmm. a whole story there. Like, you could do a whole movie about another a person coming into that market and wanting to buy a different flower. And what does that flower do? You know, I mean, it's there. And, and it's like when he and the Sky Pirates, it's never spelled out for the audience what they do. We learn about it. We see them doing it. And then we go put together, oh, they're harvesting lightning. And we see them engage in a trade with uh, Ferdy. And we go, okay, they they harvest this <laughs> and they sell it. 
but it's never flat. Like it, it could have been like two minutes of exposition about, oh, we do this in order to capture the lightning, which is good for this use. And we sell it for this much. And it's like, wait, wait, at that point that you're harvesting lightning from the sky, you're not really pirates, even though that's what we keep calling them. They're just, <laughs> they're just businessmen. <laughs> Absolutely. They're, they're fishermen. Like that's all they are. It's, it's fucking great. Like the, 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 the scene where you see them like trying to steer the lightning into some kind of a socket and you have all the characters that are outside in the sea uh, like in the rain they're all wearing traditional like seaman gear like they they've got the big floppy hats and stuff like that i see the pictures of my grandfather's wearing like it's a brilliant little scene and you're absolutely right they're not pirates they are just fishermen really yeah but since ebert brings it up we can go ahead and talk about de niro which (laughs) i i am not a huge robert de niro fan like i love him in his mobster roles, which, you know, he pretty much came to fame. I like his younger stuff, uh, you know, Raging Bull and, and that kind of stuff. But I feel like as he got older, he just kind of became a caricature of himself with stuff like the Analyze This movies and, and that kind of stuff. And this is probably one of my favorite De Niro comedic roles <laughs> because it's such a departure from his norm. Uh, you know, especially when he finally gets Tristan and Yvain into his his quarters and, and for a private moment and his whole demeanor just transforms into this almost foppish type character and it's just like oh my god he went for broke on this part and he wins the scenes absolutely like absolutely like i mentioned earlier like he is clearly like during that like i think this is called the third arc or i don't know what exactly the movie term is but he absolutely take this like this is supposed to be a uh, a, a, a series of scenes that show you the growing love between kristen and ivan and all you're doing is you're watching robert de niro the entire time right he's he's great that entire scene yeah i'm i'm I wouldn't be able to like name more than three movies with Robert De Niro in him in it. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm really bad at like star naming, so <laughs> that's fine. That's not a problem. <laughs> but this is absolutely like if you mention Robert De Niro, this is what comes to my mind, and that is probably upsetting <laughs> to some Robert De Niro fans. <laughs> yeah, probably, but I I don't care. I think I honestly do think it's one of his best roles that he's done because the the, the diversity of the two forms of character, you know, the, the public persona, the reputation that he keeps yeah. talking about is one character unto itself. And then the behind closed doors. And I love that there are enough winks and growls from his right hand man that you catch on that the crew is totally aware of his real personality, <laughs> even though he's putting on this show and he gets upset when he gets outed and they're just like, we've always known we still follow you because you're our captain <laughs> you're a great fucking captain that's that's what matters here dude you're right, a great captain. right so ebert mentioned in his review about the, the kind of the formula for a fantasy or a comic fantasy he says you know the structure involves the hero the quest the prize and what stands in the way and i think one of the problems that he probably had with this movie and it's certainly not a problem i have with it is there are so many story arcs going on that are centered on the same prize because it's not just Tristan wanting to get the fallen star, which we then discover is, you know, a young lady, but it's the, the princes needing to, to get this necklace in order to, you know, be become the king and the witches wanting the star because she's the key to longer life. Mm-hmm. And you no, know, then eventually you get the 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 mother in there as well, wanting to protect her son. And it's 
it's a lot of storylines that all hinge on the same thing. And it's an aspect of the movie that I love, but it's a departure from that formula that Ebert wants, I think. Yeah, it's a it's a great uh, I think use of the like I I love it when the movie has that A a B and a C plot and they're all almost as important and they all get so interwoven and they're so uh, pivotal to each other. I like when I watch the movie for the first time I'm um 19. <laughs> I'm I think I'm 19. I'm uh, yeah, surely I'm 19. Uh I'm. I still haven't got the formula. So when it's revealed that he's like uh, a prince, I was just like, "What? I, I didn't see that coming." Well, it's probably very obvious to anybody watching. No, actually, that was one of the points that I wrote down in my notes. Is that is done so well because the the, the formula to that pathway is when Tristan's father meets the the slave girl. Ooh, she nah. says that she's actually a princess who's been imprisoned by this witch. But she says it in a way that doesn't feel authentic to me, that feels like she's lying, like she's trying to put on a story for to impress this young man that she's taken a fancy to. So I didn't buy it. So I immediately put that out of my head. Then when we get to the princes and their dying father, there is a bit of dialogue about the missing princess, but it's almost implied that one of the princes has killed her. Like, and Septimus says she's not in line for the throne why would i kill her but the underlying feeling is he did and so it feels like character building rather than this throwaway thing so it's not until you realize she really is royalty she really is a princess that that you could even start building that connection that tristan is royalty so for me even having seen the movie before and as i said it's been a while since i've seen it I didn't make the connection until late in the film and then went, oh, my God, right. <laughs> all right, all right. No, uh, like, I absolutely love, I love the interviewing stories. I love that we have two plot elements. We have the plot element of the, the, the rupee and the star. And those two instantly, from the moment the movie starts, those two are the same thing technically. And then we have three different people hunting that same thing, all for different reasons. And right. I love it. It's, yeah. It's, I, and and then, then, like, as the movie goes on, people start learning about other people's um, uh, aspirations. And you, like, I, I love the scene where Septimus learns that the, that the rupee is held by a star and he's just instantly like, oh. Oh, I can become an immortal king. Like he instantly <laughs> elevates his aspect, like expectations of his life. Like there's not a moment hesitation where he's like, "Nah, that's fairy tales." He's just like, "Immortal king, sounds good. Has a ring to it." Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and it 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 changes his motivation for why he's chasing her, but it only increases his desire to get her rather than you know it, it, it rather than impact it in any other way it's like oh because yeah. the stakes weren't high enough that he wants the necklace now he wants the necklace and the girl <laughs> yeah it's it's great I, I love it and um I, I i i love i love that opening scene even though the elephants make me crazy i love that opening scene uh and i genuinely think that is why i go back to that movie uh, when the slave girl is trying to sell the glass flower, she offers it to him for, what was it, color of your hair or your memories from before you were three. And Well, yeah, she, sa she says those could be the prices. Like, she doesn't yeah. give him uh, a formal price. She she says, you know, it could be the color of your hair. It could be all the memories before you were three. There was something else, but I, I don't have it in front of me. But, mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's brilliant. And it's that is the Neil Gaiman element. That's a Neil Gaiman effect, and you can feel it a lot harder in the beginning of the movie. I personally think uh, when the narrator is a lot more powerful and he's having like little quips into the story, 
because Neil Gaiman really lives in the descriptive elements, very similar to Terry Pratchett. Yeah, us. and and markets are kind of a fixture for Neil Gaiman. Like I saw that scene and I went, well, wait a minute. There's a market, you know, an important market in um, uh, Neverwhere. There's an important market yeah. in uh, American Gods. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of a staple of Gaiman's storytelling. He seems to have this fixation with the weird things you could find at really weird markets. Yeah. I just I, I I think that scene's great and I like I used this phrase the other day and it uh, like I heard this phrase the other day and it stuck with me magical realism yes and like that is very much where the movie starts the movie very much starts in the idea of like there is magic but we're stuck in a crude boring world right and and the the guardian of the wall in the town of wall <laughs> who who doesn't even know why he's protecting the wall like once he discovers what what he's really been protecting uh, you know, he quits. <laughs> He's very much out of there. He's very but, much out of there. But and and if you you have to almost pause the movie to read it, but that's what the narrator is talking about at the very beginning is this letter. 150 years ago, this letter was sent and they thought it was a joke, but they responded anyway. And you don't really find out what the letter is unless you pause it. But essentially they're asking, is there a magical world connected to England? And the the scientists who respond say, no, of course there's not. And yeah, we find out quickly because it's Neil Gaiman. Yes, there is. (laughs) There's always a hidden magical world just around the corner. Yes. Uh, It's it's absolutely beautiful. Sorry. Yeah. You like you mentioned earlier, like what are some of your pet peeves with this movie? Like you just reminded me of one. It's the um, Guardian of the Wall. Uh, When uh, Tris, uh, what's his name? Tristam's dad tries to go through the wall, runs through it. When Tristam tries to go through the wall, he's all of a sudden a ninja. I know it's a joke, but it's just like, what what happened in between? Well, I think he got so frustrated by Dunstan (laughs) being able to get through that he improved his game. And we should mention the guard is played by David Kelly, who also appeared in the uh, Tim Burton remake, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, oh yeah, he. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I, it actually cracked me up that he now has moves when Tristan decides to go through, because I think he got so frustrated by being defeated by Dunstorm, Dunstorm <laughs> that that you know that was that was it. Uh, I absolutely like love that. I, I like, I, I love that these little scenes in the early movie, uh, like. I, 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 like I say, they're pet peeves of mine, but I watch the movie anyway because I, I, I love it despite its like weird little flaws. Yeah, I love the establishing part of the prince's storyline just because that whole gimmick works so well for me throughout the film. The idea that you have these princes who are named based on the order in which they were born. So it's Primus <laughs> and Secundus, uh, you know, and of course we follow Septimus. Um, the idea that they had to kill each other to determine mm. the direct ascension, you know, the line of ascension, uh, instead of just going straight to Primus, it's to whoever is surviving. Um, yeah. And the fact that they are followed by the ghosts of the other brothers, because the ghosts can't be, uh, can't can't find their way to heaven or hell or wherever until the new king is actually determined. So they're stuck on Earth in these ghost forms, following their living brothers around, but they're also stuck in a form that reflects the way they died. So you have a guy walking around with an axe in his head, which obviously wasn't a subtle uh, <laughs> death. You have the guy with the flattened face because he's pushed out of the window at the beginning of the movie and he li- lands on his face. You know, and I just that part of the movie entertains me to no end. 
oh the 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 ghost the gaggle of ghosts as I call them they're they are just beautiful they are genuinely like that little extra that like there are so many little extras that push this movie up but all of them together create this beautiful movie I love the ghosts I love their interactions I love their makeup I love the the I like there's something about the way that uh, I don't remember what the name of the first one to die we see the one that pushed out the uh, window the way he like awkwardly looks around like ah primus ah secundus ah trimus you're alive and all of them just like are you how stupid are you right oh oh no yeah his his dawning realization that he's not uh he's not alive anymore (laughs) it's like it's so silly it's really dumb it's very i would call this british humor it's like it's not very clever it's just expressive and I just, I, I love it. I love it. Yeah. No, I, I do too. And I and I love watching that storyline. Again, it ups the tension because you have another force zeroing in on this fallen star. But it's also fun to see, like, when he and the, the witch meet, you know, the interaction between them. Because originally he's only after the necklace. Like ideally the two of them could have paired up and been like, all right, you get the star and I get the necklace and everybody's happy. Yeah. And and again, you brought it up a few minutes ago when he finds out that it's a fallen star, he changes his goals. Like instead of forming an alliance with the witch, now he wants the star too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Septimus has aspirations. He's yes. the, like you can clearly tell by the start of the movie, like he is the son that the dad probably wanted to succeed him. It is very obviously established that the dad killed his siblings very fast and very quickly. Right, because uh, when his dad died, he was the only one left. Like they, they yeah. had already taken care of it all. There was no need for this necklace nonsense. <laughs> yeah, the the phrasing was before my father even felt ill, I was the only surviving son. <laughs> right. And I want to call back a little bit back to that scene. It's when the king casts the spell. um, He takes the rat out of the ruby and whoever returns the rat to the ruby, he becomes the king. And I noticed this when I watched it this time. The king casts the spell and instantly dies. Now, there is definitely a possibility that was just like, all right, right, let's just move the plot along. We just need the king dead. The ruby's flying and we know what the plot is. But a part of my brain went, in this world, casting magic costs you time off your clock. It makes you age. Well, and that kind of ties into the witches' storyline because, yeah, you know, the one of the first things when when the witches discover that there's the the star, and the one uses the power, the the remaining power of a star that they had to to become younger, and that's you know Michelle Pfeiffer looking really hot <laughs> even at her age, just really owning. I love the fact the first thing she does is throw <laughs> off her dress and look at herself in the mirror. And we never see a full body shot. We don't even, it's just the hint of nudity, but the look on her face when she looks over her shoulder into the mirror, that, that just absolute loving the this absolute vanity of the witches is brilliant. Right. And the first thing she says when she, once she's young is how have we lived like this for so long? And then she uses her first spell and gets the the liver spots and everything on her arm and it's like oh that's how you why you've been living that way for so long because using the magic ages you and you don't have many years left unless you find you know a, a source of youth yeah I, I i absolutely love that and uh yeah we learned that the this like a little bit later that spells cost you your like your age and when the when the king casts the spell and the diamond flies up into the air and goes away it's 
it's in that point that I've written down great soundtrack exclamation point. Yes. It's, it's something I, I like I don't know if I've thought about this before, but I absolutely fell in love with the soundtrack this time around. I agreed. And I am exact same boat. I never had really paid it much attention before, but rewatching this last night, it was like, my God, this is a really good soundtrack. And that's the point where I put, uh, usually when I watch movies and stuff on my computer, I always have one ear off because I'm paranoid and I don't like being uh, unaware of my <laughs> surroundings. But that's the moment, like, ah, the other can went over the other ear. Now I need to be in this movie because this soundtrack is fucking banging. I love it. Uh, <laughs> Oh, uh, my second point after great soundtrack is soundtrack still banging. Uh, all right. <laughs> I'm not very creative in my notes. <laughs> well, I, but you are creative in your thought because I had never connected the idea that the, the king casts that spell to remove the color and then dies. And that's absolutely that. As I said, that makes sense with what we learn of magic throughout later in the movie. But yeah. that's not established at that point. And I had never connected those dots. That totally makes sense. Yeah, uh, and there are more points when I watched this movie this time around where I was making some uh, connections or something like that. Like I was seeing like a semi, like uns- like a subtle plot underneath. And my brain really, really, really wants to believe that I am finding hints that the writers thought about the world and the effects it has. But then there are scenes where they, they reiterate the same point like four times so that the <laughs> audience can get it. And I'm going insane thinking like they can't be subtle and this bad at the same time. It's I, I never wrote down any of the points and I'm li- really, really mad about it right now because I don't remember a single good instance of it. Oh, it's the... Um, the, the, the witches repeatedly saying that uh, youth comes from the star. They say it like five or six times again and again. You need to know the youth comes from the star. And the, oh yeah, and the princes, uh, when they meet, meet up with the deacon or the pope or whatever he is, again, again, like three times it's reiterated, whoever gets the, the, the stone back is the king. Whoever gets the stone back is the king. You should get the stone back because you'll be a good king. Don't let him get the stone back. He'll be a bad king. And I'm like, I get it. <laughs> I, 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 I get it. I get what the stone does. I get what the star does. But at the same time, King Poof dies. And you're like, wait, was that a clever hint that the magic system this world has? Yeah. And I mean, that's what I I said earlier about what I, I love about the, the, the building the universe is there's so many hints at other things that aren't fleshed out. But you're right. They do hit some of the key plot points a little hard to make sure the audience is along for the ride on those. Yeah. I'm B. I'm CC. And this is Murder City. True, True crime, crime of Houston, Texas. Slow down and take a trip through H-Town. Discover the dirtier side of the Bayou City as we discuss Houston's homicides and search for answers to unsolved murders and missing persons of our community. Lean back. And keep it trail. With Murder City. Find us at MurderCityPod.com. And on Twitter and Instagram at MurderCityPod. Houston is out. Uh, there's just one sentence that I absolutely love, and it's early in the movie. Um, it's when um, Tristan takes the... Um, I don't know what... I don't remember what her name is. Uh, Vivian? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, Victoria. Victoria. Um, Tristan takes Victoria out, and he spends all his money buying uh, champagne and flowers and candles and, like, takes her out to this gorgeous place, and he's trying to woo her, and he's, she's clearly not interested. She's just using him. And the... Uh, uh, 
at the end of it, he's just like, oh, like he makes some kind of a grand gesture. I'll go get a star for you and then you'll marry me. And she's like, yeah, sure, whatever. Both of them know he's not going to do it. And the camera pans away and you hear the narrator go along the lines of like, if Tristam knew the audience to his humiliation at this moment, he would like, (laughs) (laughs) this night would have been even worse somehow. And it's like, I I love that. I I love that phrasing, the audience to his humiliation. Yes. And we should we should mention because we somehow haven't that the narrator is played by Ian McKellen, so it's <laughs> a beautiful voice. The line that stood out to me this time, and it may have on previous viewings as well, but Evane's speech about love, which she says, yes, "I love, I know I, that I love know is that unconditional. Love is unconditional, but I also know it can be unpredictable, unexpected, uncontrollable, un." bearable and was <laughs> strangely easy to mistake for loathing that's uh that's that's when they're in the car right when he's a mouse yeah yes yes yeah. and i just i i love that the, the amount of uns that are in that you know the unpredictable unexpected uncontrollable yeah. i i love that but i also love the notion that love can be strangely easy to mistake for loathing. Like the two of them did not get along at the beginning at first. And they had reason for that. But as their travels have taken them on this adventure, that feeling of dislike for him has actually been her developing feelings for him. And she's not recognized it until this moment. And I, I love the emotion of that speech and that scene. It is absolutely ludicrous. How good that scene is. That is one of the kind of like hurdles in the story of magic. Uh, and fantasy that the part of the movie that my brain wants to like much more than the romance but that scene is still delivered beautifully the 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 writing is just on point and it's such a like yeah it absolutely catches you off guard like compared to the scenes that have been around it and following it it's very uh like it's a very hard-hitting scene there's nothing subtle about it it's just like she's just expressing herself in what she thinks is a safe environment with no prying eyes or ears. <laughs> right, because she doesn't think she can, he can understand her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right, so, so you said one of your biggest pet peeves is the ending, uh, and I think it's time to talk about that as we kind of start All winding right. our conversation down. What is... Because I love the ending! Okay, no, no. Okay, so we have to establish one thing for, up front. Every scene after they enter the witch's house is amazing every fucking scene it's <laughs> oh i can't get over how much i love that i love the fight with the fire witch i love the fight with the entrails witch and i absolutely love the fight with the voodoo doll the voodoo doll fight is probably one of my favorite scenes in any movie ever and it's, it's go- certainly impressive <laughs> oh it's it's gorgeous and then you have the gaggle uh, of ghosts commenting Ooh, oh oh no that and shouldn't look, have happened and looking at him and looking yeah. at him, because he's dead at this point, they're looking at him like, what the <laughs> hell are you doing? And he's obviously not in control. <laughs> I'm not doing this. It's great. Uh, but no, at the end of the movie, we learn that the witch is going to let the star go because a broken heart is no use, especially now that her sisters are dead. And she lets the the, the, the star walk away along with Tristam. But then she closes the doors and, ah, ha, ha, I'm, I'm still evil. Now that my sisters are dead, I get more heart. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I get it. Unfortunately, that that speech is amazing. Um, I have heard older women, what would probably be called whale, um, when their heart is broken, it's the most 
awful moment in my life. It's when my grandfather died and my mom was in the room and I had to listen to her cry. That scene when she breaks down and talks about her sisters being dead is some of the best fucking, like, God, it grips my heart so hard. It just sends me right back to that awful moment. Really good, really good. Uh, She turns around, decides, no, I'm going to actually eat the heart. I'm going to become young without my sisters. And then she proceeds to torment them by blowing up windows, which would break the heart again. I, I I would think. And she like starts like being mean to them and ha ah, like being witch. And I'm so confused by that scene. And she's like, ah, Tr- Tristan, you, you, you fixed her heart, but and now I'm going to cut it out. And she starts walking towards him. And then they, then Tristan and the star hug and they literally beat the witch with the power of love. And I, I can't. I can't get on board with that. This is a romantic comedy. I get it. But the power of love should not be literally how you blow up the evil witch. See, I, I view it slightly different. <laughs> although although I'll agree with you. I, I, I'm, not, I'm certainly not disagreeing with you. The slightly different that I view it in is when she agrees to let Yvain go, it's, it's very clear to me that she, mm. it's deceit and that she's doing yes. it to make Yvain glow brighter because she wants that more powerful heart she so if she lets her go and then kills her she was leaving she's dying on a high note and therefore there will be more power in the heart now the tormenting i totally agree with you that doesn't make sense because if the reason she's letting her go is to make her happier and then kill her in a happier state the tormenting is ridiculous but i see it it is the power of love, but I also see it as the consequences of the witch's own hubris. That she yes. thought by letting her go and making her happier, she could get more power. And instead, it comes to be her own demise. Absolutely. You're not wrong. The theme is good. The the like, If you look at the scene and you think about the motivations and the characters and what's happening, it's good. But when I put down in, with with a pen on the paper and then they huck and blow up the wits with the power of love, <laughs> I can't help but think to myself, okay, this needs rewriting. We've done something wrong, guys. Because like there are de- there are Deus Ex Machinas and then there's whatever the fuck this is. <laughs> See, my note is witch frees Yvain to get her to shine brighter. And that's exactly what she gets. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> I, like I, again, like I see it, I love it. Like, but the the scene I would have wa- needed or wanted is that the witch would have taken a pot shot at Evane without notifying them first. Right, and that's like, how it should have played out. I totally agree with that. Like, even if it's just the opening, she fucks up the spell because I, he still has the glass flower, and she's like, "Oh no, he, you, ah, fuck! I forgot the flower." Shit. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, I totally would have bought into that because I kept forgetting the flower. So I totally would have bought into the witch forgetting it too. <laughs> oh, can I mention something about the flower? Sure. I think every time uh, Tristam and the star are together, before he loses the flower, they cannot ruin the star. They cannot use the runes to follow the stars to predict her movement. Oh, that's but a as, good point. As soon as he loses the flower, they start being able to pinpoint her again. Or when she runs away on the unicorn, right? So when she's not with him, so the the, yeah. the I'd have to rewatch it to see if that checks out. But that's to me in my brain that works out that that would be protecting them from scrying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and mentioning scrying, I just have to mention this since uh, we're talking about Stardust. Uh, there's a scene in the movie where they're on a beach and there's a bunch of little glaciers around, uh, and we have Septimus forcing some soothsayer to like tell where the star should be. 
that scene is shot in Iceland and I love that scene. It's fucking gorgeous. <laughs> All right, man. Um, we could talk forever. I mean, we've barely yeah, touched yeah, yeah. on my notes, but we, you know, I do try to keep the show at a reasonable length. What do you <laughs> want to make sure we talk about before we finish? What have we not mentioned that you want to make sure we chat about? The movie is, I think, PG-13, and it shows in many, many scenes where blood is blue, where somebody gets stabbed and the blades are clean. So just don't get shocked by the absolute lack of brutality in this movie. It is a kid's movie, first and foremost. The blue blood makes perfect sense, though, because it's that's the royalty. So they're I, they're blue bloods. And I, I love like I never connected that until I was reading up on behind the scenes of the movie. And suddenly I went, oh, my God, that's brilliant. I, I I get the joke, but there are so many people stabbed and there's a scene where Septimus had somebody up late and goes, clean this thoroughly after he stabs some filthy uh, traitor. And I'm like, there's nothing to clean, you motherfucker. You're in a PG-13 movie. <laughs> it, it just distracts me because my brain's dumb. Uh, <laughs> the music is on point. I love the music. I, I God, I love it. I can't get over how much I love that music. And the last thing I want to mention or like the thing I want to get on is I have such a hard time. Like you asked earlier, which do you think is better, the book or the movie? And the reason why I always go back to the movie is because I enjoy watching it. It's easy to watch. It's very easy to consume. But at the same time, I enjoy the last scene. Every every scene after they enter the witch's house until they hug is amazing. And that is all missing from the book. Right. In the book, they never take the star back to the house. The witch loses. I, I think the phrasing they use is the witch gave uh, the star gave the heart to Tristam. Thusly, the witch cannot claim it anymore. And she basically just gives up and goes into hiding because her other two sisters will fuck her up if she returns without a star. Right. I think I, I think that's the gist in the book. And I just love the movie so much. That scene. And there have been people who have come up to Gaiman and said how much they appreciate the movie rather than the book's ending. And all he can do is, A, remember, you know, he said he thinks they're both good stories. But he does throw out there that he did come up with some of the ideas they used in the ending. So those technically yeah. are his ideas, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, also, there's a brilliant, like, behind-the-scenes thing on my DVD. Uh, and there's a scene where you see Neil Gaiman stand in front of the, the set of the boat. And he looks kind of sheepishly into the camera and goes... They're doing all of this because I just thought it would be really fun to write about Sky Pirates one day. (laughs) (laughs) And he looks so awkward. He's just like, oh, no, what have I done? Oh, they were not supposed to put this much work into something that was a throwaway gag at the book. (laughs) That's hilarious. All right. Before we're done, we have uh, two quick games we play here in the end credits. Uh, The first is called The Algorithm Says. This is a list of movies that various algorithms say you will like because you like Stardust. So this is kind of a lightning round, your responses. Do you like these movies? Do you not like these movies? Do you not see how they're connected? That sort of thing. All right. Um, There's a lot of hidden magical world connected to real world in here. I will say that. Okay. Then I might actually like some of them. (laughs) All right. First up, The Golden Compass. Never watched it. Sorry. Yeah, I, I I read the book and didn't really care for it, so I never went and saw the movie. Mm. Uh, but it is that magical world connected to our real world type thing. Yeah. All right. Uh, Nanny McPhee. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Ask him. I have the feeling she'll probably know. <laughs> <laughs> She's probably seething in the other room now. <laughs> um, all right. The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh, I kind of enjoyed that one. Yeah. 
it's funny that that was the first one to pop up because uh, the the actor who plays the young version of Tristan's father is Prince Caspian in Caspian and Voyage uh. of the Dawn Treader. But this is the first one that pops up, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And my joke, when they made the film version of Dawn Treader, I, I said, I don't understand why they're making this. This is where everybody stops reading the books anyway. And, <laughs> and the box office proceeds kind of showed that's where everybody stopped watching oh. the movies too. <laughs> oh. All right, uh, Inkheart. Oh, that's that like random Brandon Fraser movie that came out. It is, <laughs> which I had not thought about until it popped up on this list. So I am a huge Brandon Fraser fan, and I kind of like that movie. I, I did too. I remember seeing it in theaters and liking it. I just haven't thought about it in, you know, 15 years. <laughs> it's kind of unremarkable, really. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Uh, I just read the books. I never watched the movies. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, Enchanted. Is that the Disney movie? It is, yes. The one with the long hair? It's the, it, no, that's Tangled. Enchanted oh. is um, Amy Adams. She plays a Disney princess in the animated cartoon who comes through a portal into the real world. Oh, I started watching it once and uh, gave up on it uh, shortly <laughs> after they arrived in the real world. I don't remember anything about that movie. <laughs> okay. The Spiderwick Chronicles. I could not, I have not seen those. I don't know what that is. They're quite good. Uh, uh, okay. There's only one, but it's quite good. Um, it's it's kind of a Fantastic Beasts movie where there are magical beasts, magic, magical animals. Okay, sounds good. Okay. Maleficent. I uh, never watched it. Yeah, okay. I don't know quite why it's on this list other than it's a fairy tale story, I guess. Uh, um, Hook. Oh, the really old Peter Pan movie. Yes. Uh, yeah, I what's that? I don't know that it's really old. <laughs> Wait, that's the one with um, uh, Robin, Robin Williams, Williams, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like 20 years old, dude. Ouch. You're hurting yeah. me. That, I, anything older than five years is old now. Uh, <laughs> I watched that movie as a kid, and I have not rewatched it uh, since I like passed 18, let's say. Okay. It, interestingly, I told a story about that movie in the episode with him when we talked about... Uh, <laughs> about the All right. And lastly, John Carter. Whoa, wait, John Carter? Is that the weird Mars movie? Yes. The, the one that like costed like $300 million to make and like made $10 million or something? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I remember watching that movie and that was one of the first movies I've ever watched and gone like, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, how is this this bad? And then they tried to set up a hook at the end and I remember vividly thinking, no. Absolutely not. I I think it's it's connected with again that connection of the real world because he's a Civil War soldier at the beginning and then is transported to Mars. So I think it's connected that way. I liked John Carter, but I am in a very very small minority of people who enjoyed it. (laughs) Don't misunderstand me. I think the setting is gorgeous. It's a really cool idea of sending somebody from Earth, especially that time period, to a magical realm. It's very interesting. Same with the Chronicles of Narnia. I just don't know what the hell was was with that movie. It just did not click with me. (laughs) All right. Lastly, we have a pop quiz for multiple choice questions based on the movie. Are you ready? Yep. All right. Number one, studio execs wanted a bankable star in the lead role of Tristan, while director Matthew Vaughn wanted to cast someone relatively unknown. What high-profile name and former Lord of the Rings star did the studio execs keep tossing around? A. Orlando Bloom, B. Elijah Wood, C. Billy Boyd, or D. Dominic Monaghan? Uh, Orlando Bloom. 
Orlando Bloom is correct. Yeah, ah! That kept getting tossed around, and Vaughn said no. It wasn't until he cast De Niro and Pfeiffer and some of the bigger names that they went, okay, then you can have an unknown, because you've got, they had stars to, to sell it with. Yeah. Two, director Matthew Vaughn originally had two actors in mind for Captain Shakespeare. Robert De Niro, who plays the part, was one of them. Who was the other? A, Joe Pesci, B, Al Pacino, C, Warren Beatty, or D, Jack Nicholson? I'm just guessing, and I want it to be Jack Nicholson. It is Jack Nicholson. (laughs) That would have been a different portrayal, but I think that would have worked as well. It would have been wonderful. All right, number three. The producers wanted to film more of the movie in Iceland, but were unable to locate the amount of horses they needed for production. They did manage to film one scene there, however. Which scene? (laughs) I wonder what scene it was. It may have been the scene where they killed the soothsayer. That is absolutely it. It cracked me up when you brought that up. Yeah, I I threw that in because I have a guest in Iceland. There's a scene in Iceland. I have to throw that in, and I'm glad you knew that because I would have felt really bad if you didn't. All right, number four, last question. Charlie Cox suffered a minor injury and was knocked unconscious when one of the stunts went awry. What stunt knocked the actor out? A, sword fighting with Robert De Niro. B, sword fighting with Henry Cavill. C, dodging vases thrown at him by Lamia. Or D, getting knocked down by the unicorn. Uh, I, I read this trivia back when I was like on my hardcore uh, Stardust runs. I'm going to say the vase. That's absolutely right. You're four yes! and four. Yeah, Suck he it. got hit by one of the vases and knocked unconscious. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, where can people find you? What do you want to promote? I'm currently playing two characters in the actual play show, The Lucky Die, which is coincidentally ran by uh, Hem. I would love it if people are interested in actual plays to go listen to us. And if you actually are listening to The Lucky Die, go vote for us in the Audioverse Awards. Yes, I am actually plugging this. I have no idea if it's still going on when this episode goes out. <laughs> uh, no, um, my, uh, you can find me on Twitter. It's probably easiest to find me through uh, TLD. I post on there a lot. We're, we have a Discord. We have a bunch of stuff surrounding TLD, and I'm very much in that. So check out The Lucky Die wherever you find your podcasts. Fantastic. It, it is so much fun to listen to. I I hadn't gotten a chance when I had him on. And by the time I have a second person from the show, it's like, I need to give this a listen. And I've really been enjoying it. So that's wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on and chatting Stardust. And yeah. uh, uh, feel free to uh, pick another movie that is just your guilty pleasure and come back and chat with me later. Oh, that would be fucking great. So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about Stardust, or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Talon Hess on Twitter and Letterboxd, that's T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter, on Facebook where at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or email me at HaveNotSeenThis at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode. On television, Mr. President, you look much smaller. Dumb as a jackass. This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard Entertainment games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Ethor for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other.